The Study Smarter series is brought to you in part by Med School Coach. Are you wondering how long should I give to my dedicated step one prep time? What resources should I use? Later in this episode, hear from Med School Coach's CEO, Sahil Mehta, to discuss this very issue. Go to medschoolcoach.com ITB for a special offer and to learn more about how you can get your own personalized study plan, connect with an experienced mentor, and increase your step one scores by more than 40 points. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. All right, so welcome back to the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series. I'm Patrick Beeman, your host here with Stuart Bryan, co-host and producer of the show. It's the Study Smarter series, so we are going through high-yield topics and questions today from Biochem. Stuart is, to remind you, a second-year medical student, and he will be taking step one with you guys just in a few months. So if you want to send him an email in solidarity, encouragement, or just to, I guess, moan and complain with somebody, if you don't already do that with your friends, send Stuart an email at podcast at insidetheboards.com. So, all right, so you're starting your you know, pre-dedicated, I guess, study time, we could say? No, yeah, that's that's the plan for this past week. It's been biochem. All right. Well, perfect. Let's uh, dive into some questions. You can uh, teach us what you've learned. So the first one we have is a 30-year-old male presents to the emergency room with severe intractable abdominal pain localized to the right upper quadrant area. He reports that he had been having intermittent pain over the past few weeks, but this episode has been persistent. An ultrasound reveals numerous gallstones. Patient is taken to the operating room for a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. After removal of the gallbladder, its contents were exposed, revealing numerous small black gallstones. Which of the following is most likely to be found on this patient's medical history? A. Morbid obesity. B. Chronic antibiotic use. C. Glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency. Or D. Diabetes mellitus. All right, so the answer here is C. It's G6PD. G6PD. G6PDD. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, when I think of G6PD, I think blood. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Yeah. So that's kind of why I like this question so much is because this uh, takes it out of blood it, at least one step, you know, it, and I think that's an important fact for Step one is doing these kind of higher order question um, thinking to make sure you really get a 
a good grasp on what the material is actually trying to make sure you know. So obviously the key for this question is the black gallstones. Yeah. It hinges um, all on that. I'm sure. Exactly. So there are two types of gallstones. Um, I'm not actually very familiar with it because GI is, uh, coming later for me, but from a very basic standpoint, I understand that pigmented gallstones have to do with blood and hemolysis and extra bilirubin, whereas something like brown gallstones has to do more with extra cholesterol and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So that's the, uh, the main point for this question. You have to take this and say, okay, which of these things causes gallstones? And then the answer for that is most of them can cause gallstones in some form, but which is going to cause... Makes it a good question, right? Um, Right. I mean, it's not a fun question if you're sitting there taking your step one, but it's a good question because each of the distractors exists on a continuum of things that cause gallstones or have a higher risk of causing gallstones. And you can credit osmosis for actually making you delineate which of these is causing the black gallstones in this case. Okay. So morbid obesity, maybe you have increased cholesterol synthesis and secretion. Maybe you end up with some cholesterol gallstones for that. Antibiotic use can lead to crystal formation and uh, cholesterol gallstone, right? Yep. But it's the pigmentation. So you'd expect a gallstone to be, I guess, unpigmented, maybe, what, yellowish, white, something like that. Right. Um, Brown. Brown, light brown. But we have black here. And just like with melana and hematemesis, the black color comes from, I assume, heme. Right. So... The black gallstones indicate high heme turnover due to, I guess, hemolysis from right, and that's G6PD. what's occurring in this patient because they've got a uh, hemolytic episode, right? Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So, G six PD basic facts: mm-hmm. X-linked condition patients have low levels of the enzyme glucose six phosphate dehydrogenase that's involved in red blood cell metabolism. The thing I guess I associate mostly with it in my mind um, is somebody gets put on like one of these famous medications that precipitates a hemolytic episode. Right. So, what what medication is that for you? For me, it's it's Bactrim or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, sulfa drugs in general. Right. And I think you probably had a disservice in your medical school training if you didn't have a vignette with somebody getting TMP, SMX, and having this hemolytic episode. However, this it, it is broader than that. I think one of the famous other types is having somebody who just ingests, ingested fava beans. Oh, and, that's right. um, But any sort of oxidative stress in that causes a buildup of oxidants in the blood could cause this episode because there's this deficiency in the enzyme, so you're not having as much... Uh, antioxidant efficiency within the red blood cells, right? Yeah. Another important thing that I want to mention is that sulfamethoxazole is important as a uh, competitive antagonist of paraminobenzoic acid. 
which is part of the tetrahydrofolic acid synthesis pathway. Okay. That's, you know, another direction that you might see this board question going where they give you this, this, uh, patient who has these gallstones, or maybe they tell you straight up that they have G6PD and then they want to know what does the drug that this, or what does the antibiotic antibiotic that you gave this patient do? And that would be where that paraminobenzoic acid was important. Okay. The other thing is I got a question that really stumped me on this with diuretic drugs. A lot of diuretics are sulfa drugs. So they don't have to necessarily have that antibiotic set up to make this question work, right? Yeah. So good good to keep in mind which drugs are sulfa drugs, even if they don't have the, the word sulfa in their name. Mm-hmm. Are, there, are there some examples uh, amongst the diuretics that I can't think of right now? I mean, the one that I'm going to go with is hydrochlorothiazide. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, the anti-malarial medication also, it, the way it works is by making the blood a little more acidic and that causes more hemolysis. Okay. All right. So you're dumping the, you hemolyze uh, red blood cells due to oxidative stress that releases, I guess, unconjugated bilirubin into the bloodstream, gets picked up by the, the liver and goes to, it precipitates out, can't be conjugated and put into the um, hepatobiliary tract and to be dumped into the GI tract. So you get this this buildup of black pigment that precipitates into gallstones and the presentation of uh, cholelithiasis uh, that we see here in this vignette. Yeah. All right. So cool. All right, that's a good question. That's a good one. All right, let's do another. But before we do, a word from our sponsor. All right, so we're here with another Med School Coach Minute with Sahil Mehta, who is the founder and CEO of Med School Coach, the premier medical education tutoring and admissions consulting company that has helped nearly 9,000 students get into and get through medical school. All right, Sahil, a big question on people's minds is, how long should you give to the dedicated step one prep time? Yeah, Patrick, I mean, this is a great question. And, and you know, I think back to when I studied for step one years ago, and there was a time when I gave myself, I think it was about eight weeks to study for the test and only study for the test. And I was a hermit crab during that time. I mean, I, I was just studying all day. And then I'll get out for two hours, go run or go do something and then come back and study more in the evening. And I remember being done with the test and just saying, hello, world again, you know, because it was it was really the first time that you sort of reemerged. And I know a lot of uh, your listeners are probably going through that or will be going through that. And so, I, you know, that was the first time I would say that I really dedicated myself to studying like that. I never really had the opportunity to do that or never taken the time to do that before step one. That was really the time that I I bared down and and just gritted it out. Um, And I think that's what most students do for step one. Again, going back to what, you know, the test being so important in their, in their lives um, and what they can do in their careers, really putting in that time is important. And the fact that it's so content heavy, you you just got to put a lot of time into memorizing, learning things for step one. 
So step one is not a test that I think you can just dedicate two weeks to and just be ready to go. Um, I think most people should dedicate at least six weeks, if not more than that, of pure step one studying time. And then even before that, in your, let's say if you're a MS2 in a U.S. med school, during your second semester uh, or your spring semester before you're going to take that USMLE, I think starting the process of studying for USMLE is super important. You know, going through first aid, going through online med ed, going through whatever different resources you have and understanding how a how the USMLE is going to test it, I think is huge so that when you do have those dedicated six to eight weeks, you can really hone in on the material rather than learn it for the first time. Um, so I tell most of my students, listen, I think you need to dedicate at least six to eight weeks just to USMLE study time. A lot of U.S. med schools obviously have built-in study time into their schedule, and so there's somewhat of a um, a maximum time that you can really put into it. But putting that time into it, I think, is is super important at the end of the day. You may get to the end of your you know your end of your six weeks and just say, okay, now it's time to take my test because I've been a hermit crab for the last six to eight weeks, and you're ready to take it, and you'll be happy uh, after that. But I think you really need that time in order to score well. Now, uh, some some students can get a little bit overwhelmed with all of the the planning resources, etc. Um, when you guys initially meet with a potential client, do you help create a schedule? That's one of the most important things that we do early on, and so most of the time, and I say most of the time because some students come to us uh, with a, already a study plan in place and they don't want to change that. But most of the time, our first sessions are dedicated towards let's create a study plan that works for you. Um, and that's based on the resources that you have. That's based on the weaknesses that you have. That's based on the strengths that you have. And really coming together and creating a study plan that you can stick to, let's say, for those six to eight weeks we just talked about in order to maximize your score. And so study planning and sticking to that study plan and not tweaking it every single day, which I find a lot of students do, is they go back to that study plan and worry and they tweak it and they tweak it some more. And then they end up spending six hours on their study plan every single day as opposed to actually studying. Coming up with a good concrete study plan that you can utilize throughout is super important for us and something we do with every student. All right. To get 10% off med school coaches tutoring services, go to medschoolcoach.com slash ITB. And now back to our biochemistry question dissections. How about this one? A 36-year-old Gravita 1 presents to the OBGYNs to initiate prenatal care. A combined first trimester screening test shows elevated nuchal translucency measurement with a low serum pregnancy-associated plasma protein A. Patient has a fusion of the long arms of her chromosomes 14 and 21. Which of the following conditions is the fetus most at risk of developing? Um, So the answer choices here are A, Burkitt lymphoma, B, chronic myelogenous leukemia, C, Down syndrome, or D, Ewing sarcoma. All right, what's the answer here? All right, this is a Down syndrome patient. So I got C, that, but I also am a board-certified OBGYN. Yeah, so you should know about a little bit of this uh, kind of stuff, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. The gen- <laughs> genetics are a, a little more complicated, but yeah, I have a pretty good understanding. So 
tell me about this because when I did this question, it said low pregnancy associated plasma protein A. What does that mean? A low PAP A is just one of the markers for aneuploidy and uh, specifically Down syndrome. Now, I guess I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but kind of the, the things we're taught classically are with the quad screen, which is a genetic screening test usually performed mid-trimester, like around 15 to 21 weeks. And that is a serum test that covers the four following analytes, HCG, estriol, inhibin A, and AFP. AFP, thank you, AFP, and uh, which is the one I wanted to talk about. Uh, the, <laughs> and the the thing that uh, you see a lot in the review books is, all right, somebody's got a high two AFP, right? If the AFP is real high, what do they have? They have either an open neural tube defect or <laughs> an abdominal wall defect like uh, gastroschisis. If it's too low... If the AFP is too low, then they're at a higher chance of having Down syndrome. So, mm, is it too low? Yeah, Down syndrome, is. Patel syndrome, or whatever 18 is. <laughs> is Edwards syndrome. Edwards. Um, but that actually, so, mm, is it low with trisomy 18? I don't think it is. Uh, actually. I think it's. So, the rule that I've learned is you have two up and two down for down syndrome. And then they're either all down or normal in, um, Edwards syndrome in 18. You mean? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, they're all correct. down. And I think inhibin a might be normal. If I recall inhibin a was added to the triple screen to make it the quad screen. And it's, trend, whether up or down, doesn't have any bearing on uh, trisomy 18 risk. It only mm -hmm. adds to accuracy of trisomy 21 risk. But oh, cool. I guess the, the point of me bringing up AFP is that PAP-A and AFP kind of sound the same. They're different analytes. PAP-A is done in the late first trimester, usually with a nuchal translucency ultrasound exam. And when the PAP-A is low or the inhibin A is low, then you have a Down syndrome type picture. Um, that's kind of how I remember it. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. That's, so uh, for me reading this, I was like, I don't know what protein A is. Uh, the, or I do. Uh, the only thing I know of protein A, kind of getting our micro tie in here, is that's the uh, one of the virulence factors of, uh, for instance, staph aureus. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and so I was looking at that and I'm like, I don't really know what that means. But that's not, it wasn't necessary to answer this question. Sure. Uh, well, I guess there are some other things, though, uh, worth uh, mentioning here. Like, I think that uh, what they're describing is a uh, what's called a Robertsonian translocation. It's um, the cursed Robertsonian translocation. <laughs> yes. Get it right, Patrick. Yeah, for real, right? Because these, they're not necessarily on your radar. 
And I think whenever people see like two chromosomes mentioned in a vignette, they start to freak out because there are some translocations that you have to remember and probably just memorize or come up with a mnemonic to keep them in your memory because of their associations with other diseases, which we'll get to. But with the Robertsonian translocation here, you've got, you know, a portion of 21, right, is reduplicated and attached to the chromosome 14. All right, so now you have three total copies in your body of the uh, uh, portion of the 21 chromosome that uh, causes the clinical picture of Down syndrome. They don't have, you know, three full copies of chromosome 21, which is your classic non-hereditary cause of of Down syndrome, um, but they do have like three copies of that genetic material with one of those copies being attached to an entirely different chromosome. It just looks different. It's bigger. It's got more material. What that actually sounds like in medical school speak is chromosome 21 is an acrocentric chromosome. So it has a very short P-arm and the centromere is close to the end of the chromosome. The loss of this P-arm is not that big of a deal because it doesn't contain a unique genetic code. However, carriers who have this sort of genetic setup are at risk of having a fetus with either a monosomy or trisomy. The parent carrier who has the fusion of the long arms of chromosomes 1421, which describes the Robertsonian translocation can present with offspring who have Down syndrome. So if the mom has this this fusion of chromosome 14 and 21, that material can get passed on to um, her offspring when the gametes combine um, at conception. And then you get three copies in the offspring of the genetic material with, with this setup. And you can answer this question, you know, if you get the idea behind the fusion of 14 and 21, which is presented in the vignette here, you might be able to grab the 21 there and jump to Down syndrome without a whole lot of other effort. The other answer choices, however, are all types of translocations, which is meant to kind of help confuse this a little bit more. So I wanted to to mention those. Okay. Um, the Burkitt lymphoma is classically the chromosome 8 and 14 translocation. So that's the MYC proto-oncogene on chromosome 8 going to chromosome 14. And I think a lot of people know that chromosome 14 has to do with the immunoglobulin. So what happens is there's an upregulation of these genes when it gets put on chromosome 14. Okay. The other thing is the classic CML well, actually, let me say this. I I found these so annoying when <laughs> I was uh, studying for step one because a lot of it is memorization. Like the whole hinge of a vignette you may be presented relies on you remembering that a translocation uh, between 8 and 14 um, is associated with Burkitt lymphoma, right? But there's a okay. whole bunch of other classic ones. Right. The way I'd remember this one for Burkitt lymphoma is that lymphoma has eight letters. All right. Mm. Burkitt has seven. Right. Mm. 
um, which is a multiple of 14. It's very cumbersome, but it may work for people if you're sitting on the test and you can be like, well, I know I can figure out one of these translocations based on this odd mnemonic um, uh, that uses the the <laughs> what I just explained. I don't know if that's yeah. helpful for people, but eh, try it. It might work, yeah. And, and classically for me, I get confused with Burkitt lymphoma, and I think the one that also bothers me is the other 14 translocation, which is, I think, mantle cell lymphoma. If I'm correct, it's a 1418 translocation. Actually, the 1418 translocation is follicular lymphoma, and you can remember that by counting the letters in follicular lymphoma. There are 18 of them, so 1418. Mantle cell lymphoma, if you look at the word cell, two L's kind of looks like an 11. So mantle cell lymphoma, translocation 11 and 14. And then, of course, our discussion now was just Burkitt's lymphoma. And another good one is that a capital B and an 8 kind of look the same. So Burkitt's, if you put an 8 in place of the B, you can more easily remember the translocation 814 for Burkitt's lymphoma. <laughs> yeah, and and I, I like Golian's advice on this, and that is, like, when you're trying to remember the difference between two similar things, remember one, and the other one is the other one. I think that that is very useful advice if you can get yourself, you know, uh, to just get one of those to stick in your mind, come up with a, a reason to remember them and just know that the other one is the other one. Right. All right. Let's do chronic myelogenous leukemia. <laughs> sure. And and this one is like the classic. Everyone's learned about it again because of the Philadelphia chromosome here. So that's a 922 translocation. Okay. And that's between the BCR and ABLE genes. Okay. And I, I don't understand this mnemonic. That's an osmosis mnemonic. <laughs> um, well, it might work for some people. This one, uh, the Philadelphia chromosome is associated, associated with Philadelphia cream like cream, the M is capital, with an L. the L is capital for myelogenous leukemia, cheese. I think that's helpful if you can remember that the, the Philadelphia chromosome is a translocation 922 and um, associated with that bcr able hybrid. But if you can't remember that portion, this mnemonic probably doesn't have much value. <laughs> yeah, and um, the other good thing is we, we like or recently, or at least in my school, we really kind of harp on these drugs that treat these uh, kind of disorders. And one of the powerful drugs for CML is imatinib or Gleevec. Yeah. Which will treat the 922 translocation product. All right. Last distractor was Ewing sarcoma. This is a Ewing. translocation between chromosomes 11 and 22. Now, here's a mnemonic for people who like sports or know something about it. I don't. But you like basketball? The former New York Knicks superstar Patrick Ewing, his jersey number was 33, right? So 33. <laughs> 11 plus 22 is 33, Patrick Ewing, Ewing sarcoma. So if you can make 33 out of a, the product or the uh, sum of uh, two chromosomal translocations, that's Ewing's. 
Patrick Ewing, number 33, 11 plus 22. Ewing sarcoma. Do you have anything else uh, to add on that one? No, not at all. But I thought that was, you know, that that mnemonic might work for a few people. Who knows? Especially if they're basketball fans. (laughs) All right, we will stop it there. That's part one. Look for part two next week. Head over to InsideTheBoards.com and sign up for our email list for special and exclusive offers for ITB listeners from our sponsors like Med School Coach, StatMed Learning, Kaplan Medical, and of course, our own Inside the Boards All Audio Cuban. Thanks to Rao Reynolds and Enter Shikari for letting us use the track Anesthetist off the 2015 album The Mind Sweep. We'll see you back next week for some more high-yield learning. <laughs>